Almighty God, you are our faithful God who has established covenant with your people, the church. You have put your laws into our minds and have written them on our hearts. You have shown your people amazing mercy and you have remembered our sins no more. In so doing, you have called us your people and you are indeed our God. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace, which was, which was strong in our weakness. Your mercy, which was firm in our rebellion. Your peace, which triumphed in the midst of our turmoil. We confess our constant desire to lean upon and trust in what we can do for you instead of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Lord, so fill me this morning that your gospel may go out with clarity and power through the preaching of your word. Lord, show your mercy and grant repentance and faith in all of us this morning as we abandon our self-reliance, which is filled with doubt and fear, and turn us to submit to your word, your power, your authority, so that we may rest in your abiding promises with confidence and joy. We ask you will do these things by the power and authority of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, who is Lord. Amen. Amen. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. An old confession states, The distance between God and His creature, man, is so great that although men, endowed as they are with reason, owe obedience to Him who is our Creator, yet they could never have obtained or attained to life as their reward had not God made a covenant. So this morning, we're going to be talking about a better covenant. And though we sometimes hear the word covenant and we think of um, really large, dusty theological books or systems, this morning, I want us to understand covenant in this way. It is simply a promise made by God that we may draw near to Him. For apart from God promising to us that we can be drawn near to Him, then we have no hope no help, no ability in and of ourself. And so this morning, as we look at verses 7 through 13, I want us to notice quickly in chapter 8, verse 6, right before our passage, the pastor, which is the preacher of this book of Hebrews, he's the one preaching this sermon in the book of Hebrews, he states in verse 6 to his congregation, but, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more Excellent than the old. 
Now notice this next phrase. As the covenant he mediates is, and here it is, better. This covenant that he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Better promises. A better covenant. So this morning, the, the point of the text is this. In what way? How is this covenant better than the one that they had originally? And I want us to see this this morning as we look at this text. And I want us to notice it in four particular points. Yes, four points. Instead of the traditional three. This morning we have four points and I want us to see those here. The first point begins in verse 9. And it's the reason for this new covenant. Point number two, the nature of the new covenant. This is verse 10. Point number three, the extent of the new covenant. It's verse number 11. Verse number four, uh, point number four is the end of the covenant, which is verse, verse 12. So the reason, verse 9, the nature, verse 10, the extent, verse 11, and the end, verse 12. And you're wondering about the verses before and after that. Well, the verses before and after that, uh, verses 7 and 8, are, are introducing us and bringing us up to that point. And verse 13 is closing it out and wrapping it up for us, and that will be the conclusion for us this morning. All right? Lest we miss any of those verses. Well, let us take a look at verse 7, introducing our message this morning. This pastor has said that this covenant is better, the promises are better. And then he goes on and he says, let me explain this to you. In verse 7 he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. But what we see is that this covenant, this first covenant, was one that was faulty. It had fault. It was unable to do what it, what it, had, uh, what it had expected or what people had expected of it. Now, was this covenant wrong or an error, this promise that God had made earlier? And we're going to look at these in just a minute. We're going to look at these promises in a minute. So let, let me, we're, we're going to get there. But was this, was this previous first covenant, was it wrong or an error in any way? Not at all. However, it was, it was, it was faulty in this way. It was not, here it is, sufficient. <laughs> it was not sufficient. It didn't do enough. In other words, the old covenant, the one in the Old Testament, it did not make man perfect so that he can come before God. You can see this very point in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verses 18 and 19. Chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 say... For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its, here it is, weakness and uselessness. Well, in what way is this former commandment or former covenant weak and useless? This is how it is in verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect. It's weak and useless in the sense that it can't make a man perfect. It can only display his imperfection. It can only reveal one's sin, this law, this old commandment. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And this better hope that this pastor is speaking of here in chapter 7, verse 19, is this better covenant that he goes on and talks about later. Through which, this better hope, this better, this better covenant, through which we can, what does it say there in verse 19? 
we can draw near to God. And so it was faulty in the sense that it only showed us how far away from God we really were. This old covenant, this old commandment. And so this morning we asked the question, how is this new covenant better? Well, we see in verse 8, it begins by saying, For he, meaning God, finds fault with them when he says, and then it begins in verse 8, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Do you see that? In many Bibles that you have, that's set apart because it's a quote. It's actually a quote of Jeremiah, verse, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. It's what Dan read for us this morning in our Old Testament scripture reading. It is the longest Old Testament quote in the New Testament. Pretty significant. And he begins quoting Jeremiah 31, and he quotes Jeremiah 31 from verse 8 all the way through verse 12. That's the quote from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. And he says that this commandment, this old covenant is faulty. Why? Because God says it is. Well, how does God say that this old commandment, this old covenant is faulty? Because it says, according to verse 7, that uh, there would be no occasion to look for a second. And yet, in the Old Testament, we see a second covenant being established by God, being offered to God's people as there is a new covenant that will come. As it says here, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when this new covenant will be established. And so this pastor here is saying that the reason the old covenant is vanishing and going away, which we'll see in verse 13, and the reason the new covenant is being established is because God himself saw fit to do this. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a mistake. God established the first covenant to do what it needed to do, and that is to reveal to the people that they needed their God. That was the first covenant. That's what the Old Testament does for us. The new covenant is going to be better. In what way is that new covenant better? Well, it is better in four ways. In its reason, nature, extent, and end. These are the four points. So what I want us to see here in verse 8 is that as this pastor begins to communicate and, 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 uh, and, and issue out this, this passage in Jeremiah chapter 31, he's going back to a time period in Jeremiah chapter 31 that was very difficult, to say the least, for God's people. These were great days of despair during the book of Jeremiah. There were people who were um, locked up in their city because the Babylonians were coming. And Jerusalem was basically enclosed and all the people had been in there for, for a very long extended period of time. And their families were starving. It says that they were using uh, human dung for fuel. It says that donkey heads were sold at premium prices for food. They even mention in the book of Jeremiah that when children and family members died, there were people wanting to buy them so that they could sustain themselves and their families. Do you, do you see this? Do you see, I mean, we don't understand, I don't think sometimes, when we read the book of Jeremiah, how desperate and how much in despair these people were. Jeremiah is in the midst of these people. And you know what he's declaring in the book of Jeremiah? This is due to your sin. 
This is due to the wickedness of your heart. It's due to the fact that you've abandoned your God and you've left your God and you served and worshipped the idols of the peoples that are around you. That's why this is happening to you. They're in great despair. And in the book of Jeremiah, in this portion, Jeremiah chapter 31, chapter 32, excuse me, chapter um, 31, 32, and 33 are considered the portion of the book of Jeremiah that's called the book of hope. In the midst of that despair and that agony and that turmoil that those people were in as they were locked into this city and they were unable to get out and they knew it was their sin that had brought them to this point and they were, they were, they were scrimmaging around trying to find a way to live knowing that there was no hope. Jeremiah speaks this word to these people in this city because he's in the midst of the city with these people starving along the side of them and he says to them, Behold, the days are coming. Doesn't that make more sense now? These people have no hope in the days that they're currently in. They're weeping in the days that they're in. These are horrible days. Jeremiah declares to them a hope. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 8. Now, why is in the midst of this agony and despair is Jeremiah wanting to give them this hope, particularly concerning this this new covenant? As I mentioned, the reason they're in the shape they're in, they're convinced, because Jeremiah has been telling them and they've convinced themselves, the reason they're in the shape they're in is because they've denied their God. They've walked away from their God that they were to serve and to honor and to trust in. And God says... To them, through the person of Jeremiah, in the midst of that despair, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Listen in verse 8, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I'm going to establish a new covenant, a new promise, a new means by which you're going to be able to actually approach God himself. Now notice this phrase here, specifically where it says in verse 8, I will establish. See that? I will establish. Verse 10. Yeah, verse 10, it says, I will make with the house of Israel. Verse 10 continues, I will put my laws in their minds. Verse 10 also actually is, I will write, but they didn't put write that out. as I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. Verse 12, I will, have mercy, I will be merciful. Verse 12, I will remember. Do you see this one-sided nature of this covenant that God's going to establish? That is this new covenant. You see this new covenant that God's establishing. He says, I am going to establish. I am going to, uh, I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to write the laws on your minds. I'm going to uh, uh, put them on your, on your hearts. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will have mercy. This is an initiation of God. This is God's initiative. This covenant is not a covenant. There's actually two different words for covenant in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. The first word is a word of more or less like a contract. It's basically two equals coming together and making an agreement. And it's the idea of a contract where you would agree to something and they would agree to something and you would come together and and, and, and accomplish something. For example, if you wanted to purchase a house, you go to the person who owns the house and you would make an agreement that I will pay this much money for this much time 
and when I'm done paying the amount of money that you agree to, then you will give me this house. That's a contract. That's a particular kind of agreement that is also called a covenant, but I'm going to refer to it as contract here this morning because it is a different word in the Old Testament, and it means two equals making an agreement. That's not this word here for covenant. This word for covenant here is the word for what's called a unilateral covenant, meaning there's only one party that is making the claim, and in this case, it is God. God says, this is the covenant, no negotiations. But God, I want to, no, no. There's no negotiation here. God lays out the covenant. The idea here is instead of buying a house, if you have a relative or loved one who has a mansion and they decide to leave that mansion to you and they die, and now what is your responsibility? To receive it. You see, the covenant is unilateral. It's one-sided. The only thing you do in that particular agreement is receive the house that your, your rich loved one left for you. You're receiving their inheritance. That's the kind of word that's used here for covenant. And that's the kind of understanding throughout this passage. Only these, these short few passages, verses 7 through 13, God keeps saying, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. You know why? Because in Jeremiah's day, they were convinced that they couldn't. And in the days of the Hebrews here, this pastor speaking to these guys, this church in the book of Hebrews, they were, they were suffering and struggling as well. And they were convinced that they couldn't. And so God steps up and says, I'll make a new covenant. I will establish it. I will put it on your mind. I will write it on your heart. I will be your God. I will show you mercy. I will remember your sins no more. God says, I'm initiating this covenant. Now, why is that important? Because he says here, behold, the days are coming, verse 8, declares the Lord, when I will establish my new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 9, not like, listen to this, not like the covenant that I made with, my, with their fathers. Okay, now, I just took a turn and I told you, I said, I referred you back to the book of Jeremiah, which is during the time when Babylonians were coming to take charge and basically overthrow and kill everybody and take them out and deport them, uh, the, the people that, uh, that, that, are, that are Israelites. But now this passage, our passage, takes us back even further in the Old Testament. It takes us back to the book of Exodus. Don't, don't go there, unless you can if you want, but I don't want to lose you here. This covenant that's mentioned in verse 9, that the Hebrews author is saying, it's unlike this covenant, unlike the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Well, when was that? Well, that was back in Exodus, right? And now this pastor is taking them not only to Jeremiah and saying, look at that day of despair these people were, but the reason they're in that day of despair is because of a covenant that was made way back in the time of Moses. When was that covenant? It was Exodus chapter 24. You can write that down, Exodus 24. Exodus 20 is what? The Ten Commandments, right? 21, 22, 23 are rules and regulations and stipulations around those ten words or those ten commandments. And then in, verse, in chapter 24 of Exodus, Moses, or God comes to Moses, and this is what happens. Listen, if you will. Exodus 24. Then God said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. 
Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. So after Moses had went up into the mountain, he came back down. He was telling all the rules and all the, the words of the Lord to the people. Listen in verse 3. And the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Did you hear that? What commitment? What vigor? And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and with twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel and offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of the oxen of the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And these basins are like big pans. They're kind of dishes. They're, they're flat. Big basins. And he's got these basins full of blood. And a half of the blood... He threw against the altar. So he's throwing this blood against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And so he's reading the commandments of these, that these people were to hear. He read all of the covenant to them, all of the commandments and the rules. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. He took those big basins of blood, the ones that he didn't pour on the altar, and he threw it on the people. And so the people had the blood of these sacrifices on them. And he says, You are to surely do what you said you were going to do. Obey these commandments. From literally that verse on, they started disobeying. And their disobedience spiraled downward constantly from Exodus all the way to Jeremiah, where there were moms and dads huddled in corners of houses trying to keep their children from being taken and being drug off to Babylon, knowing that the reason they were in the shape they were in is because they had made a covenant before God. I promise to do all the words you've commanded to me. And they did not do it. And so they violated that covenant, and therefore God was punishing them accordingly. That's exactly what's being said here in verse 9, is it not? In Hebrews chapter 8. It's not like the covenant I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's exactly what God was doing with Moses. It's not like that covenant. You know why? Because that covenant back then in Moses was a covenant. It was, it was two people. God says, these are my Ten Commandments. And the people of God says, we will obey, obey them. God says, if you want to receive the benefits of being a people of God, then you need to obey the Ten Commandments. You need to live according to the law. You need to do what the law tells you to do. And if you don't, then you are going to be punished for that. This is not... This new covenant that's being spoken of here is not that covenant. He says it's not like that one made, by, made with the fathers on the day when he took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Now, why is it not like that? Here's the reason. This is point number one, the reason for the new covenant. Verse 9, 4. They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. You see, that's exactly what... Was happening. 
The Lord said, I made a covenant with you. I said, this is the stipulations for the covenant. You agreed to that covenant. Moses threw blood on you saying to seal seal this, this covenant. You are to obey God's laws. God's going to bless you if you obey God's laws. However, verse 9, the problem with this covenant, the reason there needed to be a new covenant was because, verse 9, they did not continue in that covenant made back in Exodus 24. And because they did not continue, it says here, and, and, and so I, this is speaking of God, God showed no concern for them. You know what that word is? It's used elsewhere in the book of Hebrews for the word neglect. God neglected them. Now, how in the world does that work? Well, it's exactly the same idea that we hear all over the Old Testament and even in the New Testament in Romans chapter 1, where it speaks of God doing what? Giving them over to their own wills and way. You see, when they violated this covenant of the law in the Old Testament, God says, you know what? I'm going to let you have what you want. It's the most horrifying thing God can ever do is to give you what you want. Exactly what we read this morning in Psalm 81. As Ken read our opening psalm, you can see it on, the first, on page 2 of our worship journal there at the top. Hear, O my people, while I, while, while I admonish you, O Israel, if you would but listen to me, There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Do you hear that? I brought you out of the land of Egypt. You are to have no other gods before me. First commandment. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it, God says. Obey my words and I will will bless you and I will give you all that you need. But they did not listen. It says in verse 11 of, of of, of Psalm 81, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. Verse 12, So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. Listen, to follow their own counsels. That's exactly what's being said here in verse 9 where it says, and he showed no concern for them. Friends, we have a better covenant. We have a covenant, friends. Let me back up and say it this way. Don't dare think that your relationship with the Lord in this new covenant is a contract that you're signing up for. You do your part, God does His, and you can be blessed. Because if that's the understanding that you have of the gospel, then you have missed it by miles. If you think of what we're doing as Christians and what the gospel is, is I do my part, do live morally, do good things, do things that God wants me to do, and then God is obligated to give me his blessings. If that's your understanding of the gospel, you have no idea of what the gospel is. You've missed it. And sadly, you've probably heard that as the gospel in so many churches in and around America. That is not the gospel, friends. We are not in contract with God. He better do his part and I'll do mine. The Old Testament declares with clarity that if that's our hope, we have none. 
We are just like God's people in this day where we will go from the time we, 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 we say, I will do God's law. From that point forward, we will step out of line and continue down that downward spiral. My desire this morning is that we as a congregation, saints, listen to me. Repent of your recommitting your life to God. Repent of it. Don't be like those people in Exodus standing out off from the mountain as Moses comes down and says, will you do these commands? And we say, yes, I'm going to recommit my life to Jesus. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel, friends. Recommitting your life is exactly how you got to where you are. And you continue re-upping your life and saying, you know what, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do it. That's a contract. That's not a covenant. You know what a covenant is? This new covenant that God's speaking of? A covenant is God coming in and saying, I will establish a covenant with you. And Christ has obeyed all of the law. And those who by faith trust in Christ is righteous before God. You're not in a contract, you're in a covenant. In the same way that someone comes that's a rich, rich loved one that gives you the house and says, listen, here's the house. I've died and you, and you can have it. The covenant says all you have to do is receive it. In Christ, we're receiving what God has done for us. Will we be a people of God who will stop thinking that what we can do is bring something to the table and instead start trusting what God has done for us? It is not about what we can do for God. It's not about the commitments that we can make. It's about us trusting in what he has done for us in Christ. Christ, in this new covenant, has fulfilled the law, meaning he has done it all completely. When Christ says, I will do it, he fully obeyed the law. And those who have placed their faith in Christ, because you are in Christ, will have fully obeyed the law as well. Friends, that's the gospel. You see, that's why it's good news. See, it's no good news if it's a contract, is it? There's no good news. That's why everybody can't figure out why in the world do they call the gospel the good news. If I've got to do something and God's got to do something, this thing is doomed from the beginning. We, we just, we're in despair because there's no way we can do it. That's not good news. The good news is that God has done it for us in Christ and trusting in Christ. That covenant will stand because in Christ we are fully and absolutely righteous before a holy God. And... We're able to approach our God. That's the covenant. What's the reason? What's the reason for this new covenant? The reason for the new covenant is because the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the book of Hebrews, and us today sitting here in these seats have no hope if it has anything to do with our doing something and God doing something. It only has hope if God's the one initiating it and according to this passage, establishing a covenant and doing it on our behalf. But it gets better. It gets better than just the reason. This new covenant is better not just because of the reason, but it gets better because of the nature of this covenant. The nature of this covenant in verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. So here, Jeremiah and the, the pastor in Hebrews is both describing this new covenant to God's people. Now, I want you to kind of keep in mind, I know it may be difficult, it's hard, it was hard for me as I was trying to think through this and keep this in mind. This text is actually being spoken to a people who are in despair in Jerusalem, dying, right? And here, this pastor is speaking it to a small church 
uh, in or around, just outside of Rome, probably maybe around the area of Italy, that's struggling and suffering and getting ready to go through incredible persecution for their faith as Christians. So very, very difficult times, very similar times for both of these people. And so he's speaking to both of these audiences. And today, as we look in verse 10, the nature of this new covenant, for this, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. What is God going to do? He says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. You see, the Ten Commandments and all the laws and rules and regulations were outside of God's people. They were external to them. They were a weight they had to bear. They were placed upon God's people and said, do this. And they they took them on and it crushed them just like it crushes us. We all know that if we're loaded down by even, even, even co-workers or bosses or spouses or relationships, if we're loaded down with laws and regulations, you do this and I'll love you. We can't live under that, can we? We can't. God says here, I'm going to establish a, a law that's not external, that you've got a place on your back that will crush you. But instead here, this, this external law was the old covenant, but this new covenant, verse 10, is one that I will put in your minds and write on your hearts. Now, how's the Lord going to do that? Well, it doesn't explicitly say it here, but if you read other passages, um, you may want to write this one down, 2 Corinthians 3.6. 2 Corinthians 3.6 says this, Paul is speaking of the new covenant. He says, who has been made, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of this new covenant? And then he goes on and explains this new covenant. Listen, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So how does God place these laws in our minds and write these laws on the hearts, on our hearts He does it by the Spirit. When God gives us His Spirit, He gives us a desire to do these laws. They're no longer a burden that's on our back, but the law of God, the Ten Commandments, for us who are saved, those of us who have the Spirit of God in us, we look at the laws of God and we say, those are a display of the glory of God. And we cherish God's Word. We love God's Word. That's why in worship on Sunday mornings, we read a lot of God's word because I assume that God's people filled with the Holy Spirit love to hear God's word read because it's precious. It's in your minds. It's in your hearts. You want it. You're being fed by it. It's something, there's the spirit of God in you and the word of God being read is familiar. And your, 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 your appetite is, is filled when the word of God is being read to those of you who are filled with the Holy Spirit. In that way, the law of God is not external, oppressive, on our backs, but instead it's in our hearts. It's written in our minds. Notice that these people were marked by this very attribute. They were marked by the fact that God's law was in their hearts and on their minds. Because it says in verse 10, it goes on, it says, I will put my laws on their minds, I will write them on their hearts, verse 10, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You will be known as a people who love and cherish God's law, not as a burden, but as a joy. 
Because this law displays for us our God who we have the privilege of approaching one day, of drawing near to, of, 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 of being, being close to. You see, the whole point of covenant is what? Being drawn near to God. And the law of God is precious to us because in Christ, we, that, that law has been fulfilled and we trust in Christ. The Spirit of God draws us to His Word so that we can learn more about Him so that our longing isn't for the things of this world. It's for the things of God. It's so that we can be with our God. Now, this is partially fulfilled even today. As God's Spirit indwells people, you know what God's people does today in, in today's world? They gather. God says, I'm going to gather my people. How is God gathering his people? He's gathering his people with what? His word. You see, that's why congregations gather. Though you can't tell it so often in so many churches, the reason we gather is to hear God's word because the spirit of God is in us. And it's a foretaste. It's a, it's a beginning. It's, it's we're coming together hearing from God as, he read, as, we, as we pray and preach and read and, and hear God's word. We gather because the spirit of God draws us to hear his word. And that's such a blessing to be a part of a community of believers that treasures God's word. But friends, let me say, it is a, a shadow and an image of what will be. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Oh, what a day. Coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, isn't it interesting? There's a voice coming from the throne saying something, speaking to us. God himself is speaking to us. And God's people with the spirit of God indwelling them is is longing to hear from their God, their maker, their creator. Listen to what God says, what God will say to every saint who's abiding with the Lord, has the spirit in him. This is what God says. I heard a voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things they've passed away. And we will be with our God. He will call us by his word, by his voice. And so this idea of this new covenant, this new covenant is being established, the nature of this new covenant, God's putting his law in our minds and in our hearts. We love and treasure him. We want him. We want this law because it displays to us our God. And one day he's going to, by his very word, draw us into his presence, call his church home. And that's our hope. We will be his people And he will be our God. Could it get better than that? Well, the the pastor continues and says, yes, it can get better. It can get better, verse 11, the extent of the new covenant. 
And they shall not teach each other, one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The extent of this new covenant. You see, the old covenant was primarily ethnic Israel. It was primarily uh, the Israelites, the Jews, God's people, were those people. But the extent of the covenant in verse 11 here says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor or each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They will not do that anymore. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. You see, the problem with God's people, and specifically in the fact that they had the law on the outside of them, they had this, 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 this set of rules pasted to the wall. They actually had them in an ark that the priest carried around, right? But they were so oppressed. These, these laws were constantly, I'm under this, this law. That as soon as they had the opportunity, what did they do? They did the same thing all of us like to do. We get out from under that. We don't want that. We want to be free, right? They were trying to get out from under that. So what we find is that these people, God's people, were given the law, right, in the book of Exodus. And then we see them wandering around in the wilderness. God tells them, you're going to go into the promised land. So they cross into the promised land. They take the land, right? And they have the law of God there, and they have the land, and they are doing what God's called them to do. And then we get from the book of Joshua, who's the one that led them into the promised land, into the book of Judges, right? Judges chapter 2, which is right as soon as you get in the book of Judges. Listen to what it says about the people during the time of Joshua or the previous generation. Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says, And all of that generation, meaning the generation that went into the promised land, that had the, the, the Ten Commandments and that took over the land and saw God in an amazing way, helped them take that land. All of that generation also were gathered to their fathers, meaning they died. And there arose another generation, in other words, their kids, after them who, listen to this, did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. What we find is that's a paradigm throughout the rest of the book of Old Testament. God's people were constantly shunning God's word, having to be brought back to it and be made aware again. They took the ark and actually in the temple itself, they shoved it over into a corner and eventually they lost it. During the day of Josiah, they found the book of the law. They lost their Bible. The only one, it wasn't like they had 20. They had one that they were to keep up with. Only one. And they lost it. They forgot their God. They thought of the word of God as arbitrary or subordinate to other things that were important in their lives that they deemed more important. They grew to not know their God. It says in the book of Hosea, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God anywhere in this land. That's amazing. This is talking about God's people, not the pagan nations. It's talking about God's people. They had no faithfulness, no steadfast love, and no knowledge of God in their land. Now listen to, the, listen to what crops up when God is removed from a land. Listen to this. So there, are, there was, because there's no knowledge of God in the land, so there was swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They broke all bonds and bloodshed followed bloodshed. 
That's what happens to people when they abandon God's word. When they set it aside, when they remove it from their lives. And so the prophets were constantly coming back to God's people, God's people, and saying, this is the word of God. You've got to go back and understand that the Ten Commandments and the laws and the rules, they're for our good. You need to do them. You need to trust your God. You need to love your God. They were constantly having to be reminded of that. That was the Old Covenant. The New Covenant, according to verse 11, says that they will no longer have to teach each one his neighbor. And this doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be any teachers or professors or, or, um, or preachers. The idea here is that this law is in their heart and in their mind. And so you're not twisting their arm to make them learn anything. They desire to know these things. They desire to grow in their knowledge of God. They desire to keep the word of God central in their life. And so there's... They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So do you see the extent? The extent is that not just Israel, and not just a small group in Israel that is, that is loving the Lord, are the ones that are going to know the Lord. Because that's what the case was. There was only a small number. There was a remnant throughout the Old Testament, right? That knew the Lord. Everybody else was abandoning him. This is saying that in the new covenant, every single person who has the spirit of God in him or her is going to know the Lord. And they're going to want to know the Lord. They're going to desire the Lord. Now, here's an aside for those of you who care. So let me, let me say this quickly. As a congregational church or as a Baptistic church, both of those, I'm using those in a synonymous way, as Baptist, we are congregational. We say, and this is according to our statement of faith that you agree to if you become a member of Sovereign Grace, we believe that the visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers associated by covenant in the faith and fellowship of the gospel. And so every person who's a member of Sovereign Grace is a believer who has the Spirit of God in him, who possesses that Spirit. And so every member of this congregation is one who professes faith in Christ. Does that make sense? In other words, our extent is that everyone with the Spirit of God in him or her can be a member of Sovereign Grace Church. However, our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, who are alike, uh, like us in many, many ways, say this, and this is from the Westminster Confession, the visible church consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion, listen to this last phrase, and their children. Okay? who do not profess necessarily. They could, they could, they could not. This is why, for example, in the Presbyterian Church, they would baptize their infants, thinking that their infants can be in some way legitimate members or part of the covenant community that is established because they believe that the old covenant, when it switched over to the new covenant, could include not only the parents but also their children. We believe, based on specifically this passage, that our church and churches should be instituted by only those who place their faith in Christ and have the Spirit of God in them. Vice versa, actually the other way around. Have the Spirit of God in them and therefore have faith in Christ. Right? And so this is one of the verses where we can argue and debate about it later. But that's basically, I just wanted to mention that, that this, it's distinct in the sense that this understanding here in verse 11 is that from the greatest to the least, um, all of the God's people, this new covenant is established so that all that has the Spirit of God can be a part of the church, not those who are just, um, who do not. All right? 
So does it get better? Well, it does. Finally, point number four, the end of the covenant. The end, or you can say the result of the covenant. That's how I'm using the word end. The end or result of the new covenant. Verse 12. Verse 12 says this. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. You see, that's what we need. We may think we need all kinds of other things, but this is what we need. We need mercy toward our iniquities. We need God to remember our sins no more. In the Old Covenant, that was not the case. In fact, in the Old Covenant, it's interesting how it words it, and specifically the Hebrew author. Turn, if you will, with me to chapter 10 of Hebrews. Chapter 10 of Hebrews says, chapter 10, verse 1, says this. Chapter 10, verse verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, he's saying these, these old sacrifices couldn't make us perfect even though they were being done over and over and over again, the fact that they were being done over and over and over again is is a testimony to the fact that they couldn't make us perfect. But what did they do? Verse 2 of chapter 10. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been been cleansed, would no longer have any consequence or consciousness of sins. In other words, if they were cleansed, their conscience would be would be released and they would not have no conscious sin. They would not have to continue to do these offerings. But what did these sacrifices do? Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, this is what they did. There is a reminder of sins every year. You know what these sacrifices were supposed to do? Remind them of their sin. Remind them that they needed their God and they needed a merciful God who would show them mercy. But it didn't give them mercy. It just, according to verse 3, reminded them of their sin. How often? Every year, they were loaded back down with all of these bricks on their back saying, you're a sinner and you have to have mercy from God. Verse 4 of chapter 10 says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And this is where God's people were left. Constantly being reminded of their sin. Personally, brothers and sisters, listen to me here. Many of you live as if you're in the old covenant. Thinking if you beat yourself up enough about your sins, then God will somehow show you more favor. As one who has gone that path and fights to stay away from that path, let me tell you, That when you're constantly reminding yourself of your sin, to beat yourself up over it, to to maybe lash your back just a few more times so that you can show God just how much you hate your sin. All you're saying is that God, that Christ is not sufficient. That's all you're saying. That Christ is not sufficient. You're, you're coming back to the sacrifices, brothers and sisters. You're coming back and saying, if I can just, if I can just spill more blood, then this will, this will be seen for what it is. 
If God is not going to remember your sins anymore, then in Christ, now listen to me, in Christ you shouldn't either. Fight for that. You'll have to because I have to. You have to fight to constantly say to yourself, but that sin has been forgiven. That sin has been, has been washed with the blood of Christ and Christ's blood is sufficient. Sufficient to do what? To cleanse my conscience. Because if Christ's blood couldn't do it, you better believe your lashings can't. Your beating yourself up will never do it. The sacrifices never did it. If Christ's blood can't, then it won't be done. Friends, brothers and sisters, this new covenant that we're in is one that we have to constantly remind ourselves to abide in, to go to. Because we're constantly wanting to go to that old covenant, aren't we? We're wanting to have that law on the outside of us and carry it like a burden. We're wanting to, we're wanting to instead of say that, that, um, that, that this law is something that we love and cherish, it's something that we have to carry around like a chain in the ball. We're constantly wanting to remember our sins and come back with sacrifices to God as if we can do something a little more to help God to make Him understand that we're really sorry. If you confess your sins, what is God faithful and just to do? Do you believe that? You've got to bank on that. He will be merciful toward our iniquities and He will remember our sins no more. Brothers and sisters, turn to Christ. Trust in Christ. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. Verse 13, in conclusion. So what now? What about this old covenant? Well, I think the author is clear at this point. The pastor wants to make it clear that this old covenant... In speaking of the new covenant, verse 13, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one, which is the old covenant, obsolete. Obsolete? Really? I mean, he can't mean obsolete, like doesn't need to do it anymore at all. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to, what does it say? Vanish away. See, this old covenant is obsolete. If you return to that old covenant, friends, brothers and sisters, if you return to that old covenant and try to do your best to try harder for God, you're going to a covenant that's obsolete and that needs to vanish away. In what way is this old covenant obsolete and needs to vanish away? Well, I'm glad you asked because chapters 9 and 10 explain that to us. And I'm not going to go there today. We are done for the hour, but let me explain it to you quickly and simply. Look at your uh, worship journal, if you will. This may help. Page 3 of your worship journal, there's an outline there, a preaching outline. Page page 3 of your worship journal. And uh, I've been in uh, Christ is a better than the old covenant. Roman number 1, or uh, I, through a better promise. Do you see that? How is this covenant obsolete or vanishing away? In the sense that there is no longer a need for a sanctuary or for sacrifices because Christ has fulfilled both of those. Do you see that in item two and three there? There's a better place, the sanctuary which Christ has made for us, and there's a better sacrifice 
which is Christ himself, his redemption from his blood, which he offered once for all. Do you see that? In what way is this old covenant obsolete and vanished away? In this way. The old covenant cannot make us perfect before God. It cannot help us be drawn to God. Only in Christ can we do that. And so it's being made obsolete in the sense that the sanctuary and the sacrifices are done away with. They're vanishing. They're gone. They need to be eliminated. They need to be pushed aside in our own hearts and our own minds. Now that we have a better covenant, let us draw near to our God with full confidence, receiving mercy that our iniquities may be forgiven. Let us pray.